this story, there's a lot of things going on in this story. But I think one thing we we're going to focus on this morning is about rejection. It's rejection. It's something that we all fear. And I know this because we're human beings. I also know this because we're in England. We don't want to be rejected. We'll reject you. Thanks very much. Seriously, though, I know this is uh, part of our psychology as human beings. It's part of a biology. In fact, when we, we, there are parts of us that are made up to try and avoid rejection as much as possible. And that makes sense if you think of how a society works. It's not good to reject each other. It's not how a society works together. And even though that makes sense, and sometimes there are elements of that that hold us back from who God really wants us to be, who he's really calling us to be, what it means to really follow in his way. Because it's possible for us to fear rejection more than it is to love people. Sometimes our fear of rejection is completely opposed to what it means to love other people. The, I mean, sometimes these two things aren't working together. And sometimes to love someone might mean to say something difficult or to say something awkward or to say something that you really don't want to say. And maybe it's possibly risking rejection. But the love for the person will be to say that thing. So we're kind of stuck in, in a kind of a difficult spot. Now, of course, we should always be gentle and patient and kind with people when we talk with others. That's part of what it means to, to love others well. And regardless of whether they follow Jesus or not, sometimes just to say something that might risk rejection is something we'll stay clear of. So in the battle of our fears uh, of loving others versus our fears of rejection, like who wins? Does rejection maybe win a little bit more than what we'd be happy with? Now, we ourselves when we are living out of that fear of rejection, we ourselves are missing out. Not only is the other person missing out on maybe how they need to be loved or what words that need to be said to them, but we're missing out as well from being like truly alive, the humans that God's called us to be. So our fears of rejection, they really, they, they go very deep. They can be a shallow thing, but it can also be really, really deep. And if we don't try and find the root to do the work, to pull it out, then we will always be enslaved by our fears. It's just how it works. And I think that's what we see going on here in the story of Jephthah. If you're here thinking that God possibly couldn't use you, what we have in this story is a main character who is worse off than you. Everybody here, he's worse off than you, and yet God used him for lots of things. So don't ever think when you're reading these stories or when these words are being said that, it, oh, maybe this is someone, God's talking to somebody else. Like, no, God's talking to all of us. He's talking to all of us. So uh, whether you feel like you're a likely candidate for joining God's mission or whether you feel like you're super far away, uh, don't worry, the story is for you. What we have here, Jephthah, the illegitimate son of a prostitute, flees his home for the sake of his life, gets involved in a gang of scoundrels, which is, of course, the best kind of gang to have, and he's shamed, and he's outcasted by this. This is who God chooses to use. He could have used anybody. He could have used someone who had a moral compass. He could have used someone who maybe worshipped him a little bit more, maybe someone who didn't lead a gang of scoundrels, but led like a gang of good people. But that's not who God chose. God chose this person. He's less likely than you are, I promise it. And Jephthah's story teaches us that fear of rejection is a very powerful thing. Coming out of his rejected place, Jephthah is desperate for success. He's desperate for success. And in his desperation for success, that's ironically what leads to his downfall. We'll talk about that in a bit. Now, when we try and avoid rejection, we will grasp at anything. And like Jephthah, this leads to a sabotage spiritual life. And only the love that we can have in Jesus can outweigh those fears of rejection because those fears of rejection, they're heavy. They run deep. The only thing that can overcome that positively in a, in a good way is the love of Jesus overcoming us. 
And when we align our lives with him, when we follow his ways, we get to be freed from those roots of rejection that so easily enslave us. And even when we do experience rejection, which we will when we follow Jesus, that's what Jesus has told us will happen, when we do experience that, we don't have to be destroyed by it completely. We can get through it. He'll bring us through it. So in this story, we're going to break down uh, our three chunks today. Is about fear of rejection. Fear of rejection leads to being led by rejection, which is kind of ironic, but we'll look at that in a minute. Fear of rejection leads to being led by rejection. Fear of rejection leads to a desperation to succeed. And fear of rejection keeps others as outsiders. So let's jump to that first point. If you could bring up that slide. Thanks, Rachel. Um, so this first point may not be obvious at first. Fear of rejection means being led by rejection. Like we're afraid of it. Shouldn't we like not be around it? Well, the first point may not be obvious. But this is, what's, this is universally true. The thing we fear the most is also what will lead us. Whatever we fear, that's going to be what we end up kind of bowing down to. In this story, for Jephthah, it's a lot, there's a lot of rejection going on here. And for us, fear of rejection leads to being led by it. If we look at verse 9 in chapter 11, uh, Jephthah, the, um, these uh, elders are going after Jephthah, and Jephthah says, uh, suppose you take me back to kind of fight for you. Will I really be your head? Like he's really kind of, like are you just saying this because you know you didn't want to kill me and you also said I didn't have an inheritance and you said I was illegitimate and you outcasted me. You did all those things, but say I did lead you. Like am I actually gonna, are you gonna accept me? Why does Jephthah say yes to these people? I mean he's got his gang of scoundrels, probably an all right life, I guess as far as gangs go. The same people who outcasted him, why would he want to lead them? Coming out of being rejected, rejected, the shame of being born of a prostitute, of being seen as illegitimate. I mean, I can imagine Jephthah kind of saying to himself, I will never be rejected again if I'm the leader. If I'm the one who's in charge, who's going to reject me? I'm in charge of it all. So you can see how that'd be quite a tantalizing thing for him. If he's the leader, he's legitimate now. There's no more illegitimacy to worry about. If he's a leader, he's part of the family. In fact, he, he determines who's in the family, who's not in the family anymore. Surely, this is something that really gets to Jephthah. But what has led him there? His initial rejection. If he, was, if he was, uh, had a secure status in who he was, he wouldn't come crawling back to these people who already treated him horribly. Now, on the outside, he might look successful, and he is successful on the outside, but on the inside, he's being led by fear. It's not really a whole person at work here. Now, the point of the story isn't that we shouldn't have fear. It's not saying, if you fear, therefore you failed or whatever, or you don't have enough faith. The, the thing is, what do we do with our fear? Because we're all going to have it. The point of the story is, how do we walk through it? And I guess what we really get is how to not walk through it the way Jephthah's done. What do you do with your fear? See, in our lives, unprocessed hurts lead to fears, and these can drive our lives. I was actually recently listening to a podcast from a very successful author, entrepreneur, um, kind of like who's done everything in life that you would expect to. And uh, he kind of recently um, is dealing with, he's in his 40s now, recently dealing with the reality of him experiencing child abuse when he was younger. And what he realized is him being abused when he was young kind of led him to be successful in all these other kind of areas, trying to make up for something that was difficult for him when he was younger. On the outward side, he was successful. He made the money. He has the podcast of like millions of listeners. He writes the books that all sorts of people read. But on the inside, he was dying, and he didn't want to stay that way. 
And so even though he knew it would be much more difficult to deal with that abuse, that trauma early on, he wanted to change because he was dying on the inside, though on the outside he looked like he had it all together. This is the same for all of us, like unprocessed hurts, especially in, when we're younger. They lead to all sorts of things. They lead to depression or problems in our emotional life. They lead to problems with relationships. So this, this author that I was listening to, he started to get help because no one really wants to live that way. Who wants to live that way? Even if you're getting all the outside success, the parts of your life they are, that are being led by fear will make you miserable and they will rob you of joy. That's why you can have all the stuff. You can gain the world and lose your soul very easily that way. We think the way to solve our soul problem is to kind of get more of the world and get more of that outside stuff. But it's never enough. We can never have enough. Now for Jephthah, he experienced real, like actual real rejection. Now many of us have experienced real rejection, yes. But I think we deal with it also on another level. It's not just rejection, but we're like, we take a step back, it's like the idea of rejection. And because we're so afraid of rejection far over there, we don't even get close to the idea of rejection. So we don't even risk kind of relationships, or we don't risk aspects of our lives to even get close to what rejection possibly could be. We kind of take as many steps back as possible. I think for us as Christians, one of the main reasons we don't talk with, about Jesus with others is a fear of rejection. We're so afraid of, of people saying, oh, you're a crazy person now, I don't want to hang out with you anymore, that we don't even give it a chance. And so we pad our lives with cotton wool and kind of go through and just pray to God that we don't ever have to talk about Jesus with somebody. I mean, this meme is probably like a perfect example of that. Like, please, Lord, don't make me do it. I just don't want to do this thing. I mean, I don't know if I, ex I feel that way. I don't know if you guys feel the same kind of way. But here's the thing. This is what makes us more weird as Christians because we don't ever learn how to talk about our faith in a natural way whenever we do bring it up like that one time a year with that one person who we'll maybe never see again. Then it becomes like this really weird thing and we don't know what to do and we're sweating bullets and we're like, our hearts are going crazy and we're like, all of a sudden, oh, don't look under my arms because I'm sweating like, like we, we just can't handle it and people are like, that guy is weird. Now I get a, a weird we're weird enough as it is. We don't need to complicate matters and make it worse, right? Now, instead of our faith being an add-on to our lives, if we were a little bit more okay with rejection, we would probably naturally speak about our faith a little bit more than what we do. And that would make us a little less weird. I mean, people are always going to find Christians weird, and that's okay. Especially you guys, no. Says me, right? Now, instead of our faith being an add-on to our lives in our normal speech with others, we could place it really where it belongs, in the center. If I come across an amazing album by a new artist, I just kind of naturally talk about it with other people. Now, instead of when we bring it up, you know, that one time a year, and we're there stammering, and we're there sweating, when we experience rejection, because we will, if we're following Jesus, we will experience rejection. When we experience it, we don't stuff that pain down. We bring it to Jesus. We don't say, oh, well, Jesus loves me so much, I shouldn't feel bad or I shouldn't feel scared or something like that. Like, no, we bring that pain to Jesus. We say, Jesus, this is how I'm feeling. Please help me. I'm scared out of my mind. Spirit, please help me. All right, this story teaches us that fear of rejection also leads to a desperation to succeed. A desperation to succeed. If you can get the next slide for me. Thanks, Rachel. Um, sorry, this wasn't working. Uh, our fear of rejection leads to a desperation to succeed. I'm 
talk, definitely talking to the achievers in this room. If you have like an achiever mindset like myself, this is you know a big part of your heart. But every one of us has a, at least a little achiever living in our hearts. I just want to do things to prove either to myself or to others that I'm good, that I can do it, that I have what it takes, all those kind of small little things that we learn. We're, because we're not firm in who we are, because we're worried that who we are isn't enough in ourselves, we try and place our worth in what we do. And then maybe people will see us as worth something. And then maybe I might be worthy of being loved. And when we're separated from the things that we do, hello, lockdown, hello, furlough, hello, the kind of discombobulation that we're all feeling, when we're separated from the things that we do, it throws us all off. We don't know what to think about ourselves. I mean, look at Jephthah. He's talked himself into a good position in his tribe in Gilead. He's, he's the leader of the tribe that once like, kind of outcasted him. Then he tries talking the, this enemy army, the Ammonites, into, uh, into kind of a peaceful negotiation. Now, the Ammonites are saying that Israel took their land. Israel not only didn't take the Ammonites' land, but the Ammonites want basically what was theirs never to, be, like, never to begin with. They just want kind of more land for themselves. And Jephthah tries talking sense into them very peaceably. He's like, hey, I'm really good with words. I can do this thing. I got my gang of scoundrels. Now I got this tribe. But the Ammonites, they don't really care. They're having none of it. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. And we've talked about what this means in past, few ver- past uh, other messages. The Spirit of the Lord coming upon a person is not a, uh, an endorsement on who that person is. It's not uh, a kind of sign of moral uprightness. It's really how God is using whoever at his disposal to accomplish God's own purposes. Often what we've seen is the Spirit of the Lord comes upon people who are pretty horrible, and yet God uses these pretty, pretty horrible people for his good purposes. And what does Jephthah do? Well, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jephthah. Jephthah continues to use his negotiating skills, this time with God. He makes a vow he should never have made. He says, God, if you do what you said you would, which is, we don't need to say, we don't even need to start that, com- start that sentence that way. We don't need to say, if you're going to do what you're going to do. God will do what he's going to do. But Jephthah, he's, he's got to negotiate here. If you, would, if you do what you say you do, then I'm going to sacrifice whatever comes out of my, out of my house. Uh, verse 31 in chapter 11. Whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return. Now, whatever comes out of my door can be a bit ambiguous because it's not whoever. He says whatever. Uh, maybe he means an animal you would think. But here's the thing. Jephthah knew it was not going to be an animal. Jephthah knew it was not going to be an animal, and here's why. When an army went off to the battlefield, so if you have the battlefield over here, and here's the army doing the skirmish thing, and they're fighting each other, then um, you would have the home over here, like here's like Gilead, where they're from. There would be like this group of people who would follow along with the army, like um, family, servants, people who are like making swords and all whatever stuff armies do back in this time, they'd be here. So they're not home, but they're not on the battlefield because you don't want your family in the battlefield with you. The kind of stuff you took here was not animals. Animals are back where animals are, like grazing on their pasture land and their pens. If you're here in that in-between space, you don't set up pens. You don't set up like pasturing for animals. You don't herd your flocks there. You herd your flocks at home. So Jephthah, most likely... There are no animals there, in Jephthah, especially in Jephthah's house. And who would be the first person to come out and greet Jephthah after he came back victorious? Well, his family. Now, we don't know till after we hear about the family meeting him that he only has one daughter, and that's it, no other, no other um, sons or daughters. But you know who did know that when he made the vow? 
was Jephthah. Jephthah knew, I only have one daughter, and that's it. I'm going to vow that to sacrifice. Now, in, here's another thing, too, that um, just take a look at, especially if, um, if you have uh, your Bible or, or your book. Look at um, chapter uh, 10, or yeah, chapter 10, starting in verse 6. It says, uh, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they served not just one foreign god, not just two foreign gods, not just three foreign gods, not just four foreign gods, five, six different lists of different foreign gods all the Israelites were serving at that time. This is how the story really begins. We didn't read this because there's a lot of stuff to read here. But in the beginning, Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, the worshiping, which, oh, which other god? No, not which, all of them. The Ammonites gods, the Philistines gods, like the Moabites gods, like any, if you have a god, Israel's like, we got you. We're here to worship that god. They are worshiping all the gods they possibly could. And uh, all the gods of the people around them, these gods were all about child sacrifice. To sacrifice your child to a god was like the height of religious worship. You wouldn't do it kind of um, off the cuff, and you, you would, it would basically be a sign of serious contemplation and devotion, sacrificing your own child to this God. Only the very religious would do that. And the words that Jephthah uses in verse 31 that would, to make his vow with God are exactly in the same kind of way that uh, words to these altars of other gods were, are unearthed in archaeological digs. So archaeological digs have come around in this area, have found um, like a, an idol to, uh, like, the, like an Asherah pole or an idol to the gods of Moab, and the same kind of way that Jephthah is talking here in verse 31 is the same kind of vows that were made on the altars to these other gods. You see, Jephthah was a very, very religious man. He just didn't follow Yahweh. He didn't follow the Lord. He was a devout, just not with God, with all the other gods. He was an out-and-out literal pagan, and he has a very pragmatic spirituality. If I do this, then you do this for me. It's a manipulation kind of move because he's desperate to succeed. And when he is victorious, because the Spirit of the Lord is upon him, he comes back, and his daughter is the first to greet him. And Jephthah, though he's really sad about it, he's not sad enough to change his mind. God has never required anybody to sacrifice their children. The father is the only one who sacrifices his child. He doesn't require any human to ever sacrifice a child. In fact, that's like one of the strongest things against worshiping these other gods that God often will talk to the Israelites about. Stop sacrificing your children to these gods that don't exist. But why did Jephthah even vow? The Spirit of the Lord was upon him. Basically, God told him, I've got it. You're good. I, like, my power is upon you. And yet it wasn't enough for Jephthah because he was desperate to succeed. Always negotiating, always manipulating. There's no way I can fail and be rejected again. With his tribe, he got all he wanted. With the enemy, he got told he wasn't getting what he wanted. With God, silence. God does not speak after this. He's, God is, is silent here. God did not ask him to sacrifice his child. In fact, God is strongly against any kind of human sacrifice. And even though Jephthah paints himself as a very religious man needing to stay by his vow, what would have made him a good man, a good follower of God, to be like, actually, I can't sacrifice you because I don't sacrifice humans. Now, maybe you've uh, had a time when you were growing up where you felt rejected, or maybe you felt out of place. You felt stupid in a group of people who feel like they're all getting it. 
Maybe people, maybe you felt like you weren't loved for who you are. And of course, you have those times. Like we all do. All, we all experience that. Now, early on in life, when we come across these difficult experiences, we, we try and put up walls so that we won't ever experience that really difficult thing, especially when we're younger. We can't process those kind of really hard, um, intense emotions. For us, to, uh, for us to manage those strong negative emotions is difficult. So we, we make vows to ourselves, not to other kind of gods that we might put in our houses or something like that, but we make, gods, we make vows to ourselves. I will never get hurt again. I will never feel that way again. I will never put myself out again. I will never be seen to fail. I will always have to win. I, I, I have to, or at least put myself in a way that makes it look that way. I will never let someone see me hurt. And we all have these vows, every single one of us. They're powerful, and they lead us to desperate places. And especially if we don't even, aren't conversant even with what they are, they have way more control of us than we know. And we hold on to them even after God radically accepts us and sets his love upon us. We still hold on to those vows. I mean, rejection is one of those powerful negative feelings because we all fear it. We've already talked about it. We all fear it. So we keep from it as far away as possible. And there's a vow underneath that to the God of rejection that says, if I stay away from you, then you'll stay away from me. If I like take maybe another step, how much do you, oh, you want another step? Okay, God, how far away from rejection can I get? As long as I stay here, then all those horrible feelings, you're going to stay away from me. The same kind of sacrifice. See, Jephthah's life is the same for us. Our fear of rejection leads to a desperation to succeed. And we all maybe define success in different ways. But if we're led by rejection, we will be desperate for it. We fear people who will who, um, who will reject us internally, and so we must project something really strong externally. It's a very British thing, isn't it? Like, I'm fine. It's a very Mancunian thing. It's a very Chortonian thing. Like, I'm fine, thanks. And also, to let you know, I have the house, I have the car, I have the kids, I have the family, I have the career. Just to let you know, I'm good. Okay, can we move on, please, and talk about something less intense? And because we're not firm in who we are, because we're worried that we aren't enough, and what we, what we, who we are isn't enough, we try and place our worth in what we do. And that is such a fragile place to be. And then, though, maybe if I can you know, form it in such a way, maybe then people will see me as something worth loving. But the thing is, when people do get attracted to that, we feel even more alone because we know that's not really who we are. It's a facade we've built up. See, we've swapped the gods of the Ammonites for our careers, and we're just, just like Jephthah. And if you think child sacrifice stopped millennia ago, let me tell you this, is more prevalent today now than it probably is then. We maybe not like literally kill our children, but we willingly sacrifice our children to the gods of success and comfort. We make our vows every time we clock in early at work and stay late at work and when we don't have to. Each time we don't engage our children with the words of life because maybe we're a bit tired or maybe we just don't really want to go there. We make our vows when we model what's important for our kids as they grow up. Is it the false and fragile God of the middle class we're teaching them? One that will require us to sacrifice ourselves for, that will never give us really what we want? Or is it following Yahweh, the Lord, the one who gave himself for us and will never stop loving us, not for what we do, but for who we are right now as we sit here? The rejection is 
probably involved in one of the vows that you have in your life. I know it is for me, for sure. Uh, I wonder what else that you're hanging on to, what else that we're hanging on to. Like, do we even know? We could be making life decisions and hurtling ourselves through space and time without even really knowing what's going on beneath the surface. We're desperate people living with fears we don't even know we have. So sometime this week, maybe, just take a moment. It might take a little bit of time, depending on kind of where your head is at. Um, just take a moment with, and maybe just with you and God or maybe someone who knows you really well and ask God about this. Ask a person about this. Like, really, what, what do I fear? And how, how is that affecting my life? What am I doing with that? We can bring those fears to him. We don't have to let them sabotage our relationships with him and with other people. And we don't have to live these desperate kind of lives. Now this isn't that we, again, we, it's not that we should not have fears, but it's that we don't know what to do with those fears when we have them. That's the difficulty. That's the problem. We need to bring them to God, bring them to Jesus. So fear of rejection leads to being led by rejection, leads to a desperation to succeed, and also it keeps others as outsiders keeps others as outsiders. A life ruled by fearing rejection does not bring people in. It keeps others as outsiders. And this is where pride and racism and prejudices and homophobia, this is where it's all stoked in the fires of fear. And if fear of rejection is your fuel, you will never truly be able to welcome other people. Somebody has to be the baddie. That's how it works. You have to limit your embrace of others in some way. Like, oh yeah, like not them, or maybe not that much. This is also a link between uh, fear of rejection and self-righteousness. Uh, let's talk a little bit of, of where this happens. This is kind of at the end of the story in chapter 12, where you have Jephthah, who is victorious, and then you have this other tribe who says, hey, why didn't you let us in on this victory? Again, we've, we've seen this a few times before. We really want to get in on that victory. Basically, we want to get money, like you guys got money. And Jephthah says, like, no, like I asked for help, and you didn't come. And now, because you didn't come, I'm going to kill you, basically. That's like the short version. That's the, uh, the short uh, Greg translation. Uh, see, the tribe that wanted in, the tribe of Ephraim, they had like a certain standing. They're like the middle class. They, were, they had a status within all, all, of, all the Israelites. And Gilead and Jephthah, they're upstarts. Like, what are they doing here, taking our wars? Jephthah's a nobody. Like, he was outcast. And now, now, look, like, now look what he's doing. See, the pride of the Ephraimites, they're hurt. And they want Jephthah and the the Gileadites to be in on it with them. What Jephthah does is he captures the land leading to where um, where the Ephraimites live. It's like a strip of land. He captures that land and basically says, none of you are allowed over here. And the way that he does that is like, say this word. Can you say this word? And if they can't say Shibboleth, they say Sibboleth. And he kills them. It's kind of, I mean, I don't think I've ever heard of a rivalry about ways that different people speak in the north and the south. That's never happened, has it? No? Southern accents, northern accents? No, it probably can't be applicable to today. So as they, uh, and, and this isn't like a few hundred people. It's 42,000 people. And these are like Israelites killing Israelites again. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of images of God. That's a lot of people that God cares about. 42,000 of God's people being murdered because of where they were born and how they happened to speak. So our fears are not without casualties. I think we can naively think that our problems are our problems. And if we can handle it ourselves, it's not a problem for anyone else to know about. It's not, certainly not a problem anyone else can help me with. And what our fears do, though, is they always kind of leak out. 
because they're always a part of us. They always kind of leak out a bit. And they keep people at bay. They lead to all sorts of things. They lead to self-righteousness, to anger, to hatred, and even murder. That's what we find in these kind of six verses in chapter 12. At least, and for us, at least murder in our hearts. And this is where we see two things linked that we may not think would be linked right off the bat. Our fear of rejection and our self-righteousness. These two things are actually quite closely linked together. When we live by fear, we're not confident in who God has made us to be. And so we're living, because we have to live by some other means. Uh, and so we must construct these other false kind of foundations of why we're good. Well, the reason why I'm good is because I do this, I act like this, I have this view, blah, blah, blah. And it ends up being this kind of comparison game. I can be okay because I'm not like them, because I do these things. Those people don't do those things, so I'm okay. And all that comes from our fear of wanting to be part of a group or, or fear of not being part of a group. I mean, take your view on like, masks or social distancing or politics like well I do this and those people don't do that or I don't do that and those people do so therefore I'm good you notice whenever we think that way we always end up better that should kind of like be a thing if I'm always the better person at the end of it maybe there's something wrong with the formulas and the way I'm weighing things to the extent that you are not confident in who God has made you to be in what Jesus has done in you, and what the Spirit, even now, as we're sitting here listening together, even now is, is at work in you, to the extent that we don't get those things, our fear of rejection will be our fuel. And that will require self-righteousness to keep going, because we have to be better than somebody else. Fear will be our fuel. We'll be prone to reject others, or at the very least, cannot strongly welcome them the way that Jesus has welcomed us. And we'll be polite about it, of course. I mean, we're in England, after all. We'll be very polite. But when we understand it, when we get that God himself has formed us, not generically us, but you, literally yourself, when God has formed you, and he has spent time with you, when we think of the depths that Jesus went to in order to win you back to him, that we matter that much to an infinitely good God, when we think of how the Holy Spirit, God himself, has chosen to make his home in you, within us. And he wants to be around us more than anyone else. Probably he wants to be around us more than we want to be around ourselves. When we get that, we're freed from a life of fear. That gives us something else. We're freed from thoughts of rejection because we've already been accepted. We're free from that game of who is better and I need to make sure I'm at least 51% better than this other person. That takes up all our energy. And when a group of people get that together, that radical acceptance that we have from Jesus, regardless of where we've come from, when a group of people get that together, we have a family. Unlike the warring tribes here in, in Judges, where people are literally killing each other, God's church is united together. And I don't know about you, but I didn't have a great family growing up. I experienced a lot of rejection within my own family growing up. The church, though, it's imperfect, is a place of healing for those kind of experiences, is a place for putting us back together. It transcends physical boundaries, transcends uh, language boundaries, it transcends class boundaries because it's something that God is putting together. And unlike Jephthah, who was a rejected leader failing, Jesus was a rejected leader who never fails us. Never fails us. On earth, Jesus faced a worse situation than Jephthah did. Jephthah's like, ah, oh, an invading army. Jesus is like, how about all the forces of evil to ever exist or ever will exist in the future? That's who Jesus was up against. 
He was up against all the powers of evil and death, everything that holds back all of creation from what it was meant to be originally. And unlike Jephthah, Jesus doesn't sacrifice others to guarantee a victory. Jesus sacrifices himself for us to participate in the victory. That doesn't make any sense. It defies logic. And thank God it does. He sacrificed himself, and that itself was the victory. Now, there's this Old Testament quote that shows up a lot of times in the New Testament, and Jesus quotes it about himself. In Matthew 21, 42 is one spot. It says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So a cornerstone is like the foundation of the foundation. It's the, the thing that the whole building hinges upon. See, Jesus was rejected when he was alive, but that didn't stop his mission from going forward. In fact, it was in his rejection that he won his mission to be able to go forward. Jesus was overlooked. Jesus was rejected, forced to drag himself outside of the city, and he was put to death in the most humiliating way. His rejection was on full display. Is there any more famous act of rejection than Jesus on the cross? Is there any more humiliating thing for someone who's supposedly powerful to have gone through? Jesus on the cross, that's rejection. And he went through that not for his own glory for, by itself, although obviously he got glory for it, but it's to win a people for himself, and that is what gives him the glory. And we call this event at the cross the worst injustice the world has ever seen. We call it good, good news even, gospel. How can the most famous act of rejection be called good? Because Jesus faced a rejection worse than any of you will ever feel, experience, worse than we will ever get in our lives. Jesus has already been there and been farther along. And he emerged victorious. So we don't have to be bound to our fears of rejection. When we follow him, he makes a new whole person from the inside to the outside. We have a foundation better than fear. The cornerstone is one that's worth building upon, is one of, of radical acceptance in his love one that doesn't call us to sacrifice our children, but to be children through his sacrifice. And when we do experience rejection, and again, if we're obedient to what God calls us to, we will. We will experience rejection. Jesus has sent his Holy Spirit to comfort us. The comforter is another word for the Spirit. To be with us. And Jesus has made a vow. Jesus' vow is, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I am with you always. That's Jesus' vow to us. And as we engage deeply with his church, we also find we're not alone in this battle together. When we fear rejection, we will be led by it. We will be desperate to succeed, and we will keep others as outsiders. But when we align our lives with Jesus, it's a totally different way of being. When we align our lives with Jesus, he frees us from that horrible kind of held back way of living and gives us a new path of life, a new path of joy, despite any kind of rejection we can experience. And as we come to communion, um, here are some uh, reflection questions for us. Uh, it's worth uh, doing between you and God even better with, um, in core groups, which are people who um, know each other well and are, are walking um, in faith with each other. Uh, so here's the uh, three questions. Thanks, Rachel, for putting those up. How does a shame or fear or worry of rejection sabotage your faith with God? How does God in his love speak to you when you're rejected? And what might be a small step towards hearing God's voice over your own? Because we know our own voices are tainted with all sorts of things. But when we hear God's voice coming in, that changes the song, that changes the, the themes that we live by.
Let me pray.